Aloha. This is Catherine Cruz. Thanks for joining us here on The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. It's Thursday, November 16th. Climate Check, a new federal report out, includes a closer look at the impact on the Pacific Islands, hazardous to our health in more ways than one. We talk about immigrant services during this recovery period for Lahaina families following the wildfires, the challenges they have to overcome, and who's helping them. As we count our blessings this Thanksgiving, we sit down with Emmy Tabimbang to talk about hope as she prepares to reprise a part of a show she did with beloved musician Willie Kay before he passed, a nod to a Maui son and spreading hope in our time of need. And the director of the documentary Hometown Legends shares why her film feels like a warm hug to viewers. is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Long before the Maui wildfire, scientists across the Pacific were surveying the landscape of risk due to climate change. We talked to Abby Frazier, lead researcher on a federal report released this week. It's entitled The Fifth National Climate Assessment. The former Hawaii resident uh, had been working on climate variability across the U.S.-affiliated Pacific for more than a decade before recently taking a position at Clark University in Massachusetts. She spoke with us yesterday afternoon about the findings. The majority of my research is actually still all in Hawaii and Pacific Islands. So I study climate variability and drought and wildfire in the islands. And I use a lot of model data to understand how the climate is changing. So this report, I was the chapter lead and we had a team of 16 authors and dozens of other technical contributors. And I think we cited close to 500 scientific articles and sources for this chapter. So it's very comprehensive and gives us the latest in terms of what we know about how climate change is affecting the Pacific Islands region. The catastrophes, like what we experienced in Maui, are unfortunately the kinds of horrible events that may continue to get more common with uh, with climate change. And In our chapter, we actually do talk about fire in the Pacific Islands. And although wildfires are very problematic in Hawaii, they are actually even worse on other Pacific Islands. So we have a figure that actually shows how the annual percent of total land area that burns every year for Pacific Islands is either equivalent to or in most cases much greater than the percent area that burns in the western U.S. states. Okay, and the islands you're talking about, American Samoa and Guam? Mainly the western Pacific Islands for the fire. So Palau, Saipan, Tinian, Rota, Guam, and Yap. What types of changes have they seen? Across all the islands, we're seeing, you know, shifting rainfall patterns. Drought is really increasing in some islands. Temperatures are rising everywhere. Sea levels are rising. Oceans are becoming more acidic. And with the wildfire risk in particular, we have seen an increase in wildfire risk for the islands. But, you know, one thing that our chapter does, not only are we talking about all of the ways that climate change threatens our unique island ecosystems and cultural resources, but we also talk about 
the actions that are underway and solutions that people are implementing on the ground. So we really tried to highlight the action that's that's going on in the region to bring hope to the to the challenges. When we talk about climate change and rising temperatures and rising sea levels, I mean, for little islands out there in the middle of the big Pacific, we're talking serious stuff here because this is, you know, all our infrastructure and our food and our water. Yes, exactly. And those are actually the key messages of our chapter. The first is water and food. The second is about human health. The third is about rising sea levels, threatening our infrastructure and economies. And then we have one about ecosystems and biodiversity. And then we really round it out with how how much indigenous knowledge systems can strengthen island resilience. And we, we have that theme woven throughout the, the whole chapter. And there is lots being done here in Hawaii to look back, right, to see, okay, mm-hmm. how did our communities here, how did the Native Hawaiians survive and thrive? You know, whether it's, you know, dealing with the aupua'a and the the uh, uh, fish ponds, you know, just that different approach to taking care of the land. Absolutely. And we have just a wealth of information in Indigenous knowledge and local knowledge and so many of those actions and solutions are, are being implemented and we just I think we need to scale it up. We need to make people more aware of some of these, um, you know, indigenous knowledge-based solutions and, you know, figure out how we can use these to move forward to strengthen local food security. You know, islands are so reliant on exports and being at the end of these long supply chains that we saw disrupted during COVID-19. And, you know, so how do we improve local food security by relying on traditional crops, for example? We highlight some really exciting examples of actions like that going on. Well, we just recently talked to a group that flew up to Alaska this summer for a aquaculture conference, and they were trading ideas with the Native Alaskans up there about their clam gardens, you know, compared to what we do here in Hawaii with the fish ponds. It was interesting to see that kind of sharing. Yeah, and I think efforts like that are so important because we have, again, this wealth of information and let's share it. Let's help our other communities become more more resilient as well. And relying on aquaculture, agroforestry, and these other traditional land management practices. And as we talk about these things, because of the threats of storms, the likelihood of stronger storms, maybe more storms in areas where traditionally we haven't seen those kinds of numbers of hurricanes coming through. I mean, I know where I grew up in the Western Pacific in Guam, you know, we were known as Typhoon Alley. And so I grew up with super typhoons and very destructive winds. So I understand just the need for resiliency. But it is shifting because my family says, well, we aren't getting as many typhoons as we used to. But here in Hawaii, we're also seeing a change. Right. And how the, the frequency changes versus the, the strength, right, it can be a little bit different. So even if we see fewer storms, when they do happen, they are more likely to be stronger and the winds and other damages associated with them will likely worsen. We are in the middle of a drought and yes. there is concern about, you know, what gets replanted in Maui because they need to deal with the potential runoff. If we do have a lot of rain and you have lots of toxic stuff in the burnt out ash area and they're talking about they might have to replant the non-natives because we just don't have enough native seeds. So 
thinking about the post-fire trajectory and how we rethink how we care for the land is a really, really important conversation. And there are a lot of factors to consider. And, you know, being concerned about when the rains do return and what that looks like for the sediment runoff and how that's going to stress our coral reefs even further, which those are already stressed and facing a lot of impacts. You know, how do we prevent that from getting worse because of these fires? And it's going to take a lot of proactive management and people on the ground doing this work and thoughtful planning and considering lots of different kinds of voices in that planning process. Well, I don't know where it is that you used to live when you were here on Oahu, but I know just driving around and seeing brown halekoa and, you know, that I know that plant is good for erosion control. But, you know, when those things go, then what do you plant in its place, right? Right, right, exactly. And so, you know, I lived in Ainahaina for several years. And yeah, you see the the hillsides that completely turn brown during drought periods. And this is a very severe drought period that the state is in. And with the El Nino event that is persisting and likely strengthening throughout the winter, we don't expect relief from the drought anytime soon. It's likely going to keep getting worse throughout the winter. So being, you know, it's, I think, especially important right now for the public to be very aware of the fire risk with conditions this dry and, you know, figuring out how to fireproof their homes and make their communities more fire safe. And there are lots of resources for how to do that, but it does take action and willingness to uh, to address this. The fact that the timing of this report coming out, you know, given what we just saw in Lahaina and, you know, the policymakers not really imagining that this disaster could happen. What is it that you hope those policymakers will take away from this report? Well, I think, you know, in light of what happened in August, you know, nobody needs a new report to tell them that fire is a really big deal and needs to be taken seriously. But, you know, in this report, we do provide more science and more information to help back whatever potential policies may come from this. So, you know, the information is out there and we've tried to put it forth, especially the relationship between invasive species and fire, how things are changing, you know, how dire the situation is for wildfire in the Pacific Islands. And hopefully this report can help inform those policies going forward, not just in Hawaii, but across especially the Western Pacific Islands. And that was Amy Frazier, author of a chapter covering Pacific Islands, included in a new federal review of the impact of climate change. Uh, That report is entitled Fifth National Climate Assessment. Uh, Frazier will return to the islands next April for workshops in Hawaii and Guam around reducing risks to keep our communities safe. In response to the climate report, the U.S. Interior Department is setting aside some $20 million to build climate resiliency for Native Hawaiian communities. turn our attention now to issues of ethics. For our reality check today, we connect with Honolulu Civil Beat political editor Chad Blair. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. Yeah, so we have a number of, uh, I guess, initiatives to try and 
help make our government more transparent and more accountable. Uh, not all of those initiatives uh, went through this session. No, but it was it was still a pretty remarkable session in terms of bills to yeah make us trust the legislature more that they're looking out for us that they're shining sunshine into their operations. There was one bill that came out that's now law. You got to have mandatory ethics training. Uh, for a lot of employees of the government. Uh, there's a nepotism law as well, uh, with restrictions on you know being able to hire your, your spouse or a daughter or something like that. Many, many other bills. A lot of other ones didn't make it, as is the case with any session, but there was so much focus on sunshine during 2023 session, because really, frankly, Ty Cullen and Kalani English, right? The, the bribery scandals that broke in 2022. I mean, English was the Senate Majority Leader. Cullen was the vice chair of house finance and the foley commission remember retired judge dan foley came out with all these bills well the story today is basically you don't just stop after one session right you're going to come back with more bills because there's always things that can be done to improve the system and the story today which is actually happens to be my story is about how the state ethics commission is going to push for more lobbyist disclosure to find out more information whenever a legislator has a relationship with a lobbyist, a few other things on their plate as well. Yeah, I mean, lots of money is thrown at lobbyists uh, for them to uh, help try and, uh, I guess, shape policy uh, with the people in power. Right, and there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of lobbyists, and they're from all walks of life and all different fields, and it's a perfectly legitimate profession. I I know it has somewhat of a a negative connotation to it. Well, the concern is, is when a lobbyist has too much influence and they're getting a state representative or a state senator to kill a bill that they don't want to see pass or pass a bill that somebody else didn't want to see pass. And that's where you start bringing in, well, how much influence do you have and how much influence do you have above uh, the the rest of the, the general public? So this particular revision coming from Robert Harris, I should just point out one of the other really good bills that came out last session really is for legislators to disclose their lobbyist relationships, right? If you're married to a a, a lobbyist, if your business partner is a lobbyist, if the person that you work for outside of the ledge uh, has lobbying uh, responsibilities, we should know that information. And effective January 2025, that will then be posted publicly on the State Ethics Commission website whenever a legislator files their financial disclosure form. Well, Robert Harris, the Ethics Commission Director, would like to add even something more to that. Let's say that you work for a law firm, and it's a big law firm, and you have a lot of clients, but there's also a lot of people that are lobbyists. Well, the change in the law would actually require disclosure of those lobbyists whenever they're spending more than $5,000. Again, the idea is to see, gee, you're giving a lot of money, you're involved in lobbying the legislature, well, at least acknowledge this relationship that you have because it's about integrity and making sure there's no conflict of interest. Yeah, and we saw lots of concern raised about fundraisers during <laughs> session, right? Uh, and uh, and they yeah. eventually moved to close that, but it, it was just like, look, you folks are trying to get some influence and you're, you're donating and hosting these dinners or what have you to raise money for these lawmakers. And then the next day you're voting on a bill that somebody wanted killed or somebody wanted passed, mm-hmm. and it was so obvious. Credit, kudos to the legislature for really halting that, although you can still raise money. Someone can still write you a check. You just can't have a formal fundraiser during the January to May session. Uh, There's other bills coming up, uh, some gift disclosure deadlines, some greater fines. These are kind of the housekeeping bills that happen every session. But again, the idea is to 
give greater public trust into what's going on at the legislature, which, you know, to put it mildly, was really damaged, not just by Ty Cullen and Kalani English, but so many of the other scandals that we've seen regarding government corruption. Yes, and we do want to restore trust in government, trust in lawmakers, and more participation when it comes to voting. So if you can kind of reestablish that, uh, I don't know, uh, integrity, I guess, Mm -hmm. uh, it's important. Yeah, and you'll be seeing all sorts of bills. You know, the wildfire stuff is going to dominate. Wildfire stuff, very serious matter, is going to dominate the session next January. But these bills will also be heard. It's an important part of uh, accountability and transparency. Okay, and January is just around the corner. I know it's coming soon. <laughs> Thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Kevin. That was political editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. Uh, to read the story, visit civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Green Building Hawaii, providing energy and sustainability consulting services throughout the islands, specializing in residential and commercial building projects. Learn more about services at greenbuildinghawaii.com. On the next Fresh Air, China's President Xi Jinping has become more autocratic, more hostile to the U.S., more friendly with Vladimir Putin, and reversed China's course from progress to stagnation. What does this mean for China and the U.S.? We'll talk with New Yorker staff writer Evan Osnos, who will also share his impressions of Xi's meeting with Biden. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3. Among those dealing with the heartbreak and loss brought on by the Maui wildfires are Lahaina's immigrant community. Liza Ryan Gill is the coordinator of the Hawaii Coalition for Immigrant Rights. She says many in the community have yet to apply for disaster recovery assistance because of the language barrier and a belief that they aren't eligible due to their immigrant status. So who's looking out for them and making sure they get the help they need? The Conversations Russell Subiano discussed the situation with Ryan Gill and Veronica Mendoza Jahowski, Executive Director of the Maui nonprofit Roots Reborn. Veronica, can you give us a snapshot of how the immigrant community in Lahaina was impacted by the August fires? Yeah, I mean, it's heavy. They've been impacted in, in, in all ways. I think right now, especially, I mean, this is something that everyone is going through, but definitely housing, because while everyone is experiencing housing issues, I mean, th- there is just no housing. The added layer for our immigrant community is na- now having to navigate access to housing when it does become available or whatever resources become available for housing is navigating that. One, there's the language barrier. Two, there is the just like the comprehension aspect of it. And the fact that a lot of the applications, you know, like they need the hand-holding to successfully apply because folks do try to apply But a lot of times they apply and it kind of like goes into the black hole, you know, and and they'll say that. They'll be like, well, I applied, but I never heard anything back. And we don't know, in those cases, we don't know if it got bounced, if the organization might have reached out to them to clarify something or to correct something. And so there's that like navigating of it. Now there's also the qualifying aspect. So we have folks who, you know, there are resources that come down and 
we have a couple of hurdles. One is folks are afraid to apply. So we have to convince them and we have to speak to them in their language. And I don't mean just like in Spanish, Tagalog, Ibocano. I mean like in a, and really this is kind of like the, the trust part, but in a way that they really understand that this is a service for them, if that is the case, because there are some services where they, they don't qualify for. And so one is getting them to understand, you know, they don't need to be afraid that they do qualify. There are folks who don't qualify straight up. And then there are folks that have to navigate some gray area, and those typically are mixed status households. And so unless they have someone who is, you know, tech savvy, who maybe is bilingual, typically these folks are the nieces, the young nieces and nephews, the sons and daughters, unless they have someone like that helping them navigate, these folks are falling through the cracks for those services with no real way of kind of coming out of that unless someone looks for them, reaches out to them and helps them through it. Um, Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to ask Liza if there was anything that she wanted to add to that. One thing I think that much of the public didn't understand is that over 30% of Lahaina was foreign born. From a ethnic perspective, 40% were of Filipino heritage. Some of those immigrants, some of those second, third, even fourth generation Filipino heritage. And so there were a lot of communities and even communities that on the, like, if you think about the demographics on the whole of Hawaii are not very well represented, especially if you're Oahu centric, which are folks of Mexican nationality. So there were a number, you know, several thousand Mexicans that are in Lahaina that have been impacted. And that was a new experience, I think, both for the state seeing that they needed to, and Haima, that they needed to respond to folks in languages that they are not used to working in. Spanish, though, on on the continent, you know, right. FEMA was totally prepared, but at the state level, that was not something that we were used to. So I think there were communities that our state and our county did not, were made to be invisible. And, and so they... Through this process, I don't even think right after the fire, but through this process of creating outreach events and Roots Reborn just hosted an incredible event for Dia de los Muertos and and brought out Grammy-winning mariachi bands and and, uh, folks... Mexican fire survivors came out and attended those events because they were in a language, not just in Spanish, but in culturally contextual, and they were reaching out to them directly. And so we have seen on Papa'ololokahi and Voices of Micronesians of Maui have done incredible jobs creating events that are specific to some of these populations that have been impacted. And you'll see, like, for example, when the Maui Filipino Chamber of Commerce hosted an event specifically for Filipino survivors, there were 3,000 Filipinos that came out to that event. And Haima, you know, FEMA officials, state officials were there and they thought, wow, we didn't know that there were this many of these folks. Because if you create something that is, I guess, just bureaucratic, like at the disaster recovery centers, you don't get those populations because they don't know that it's for them unless you explicitly say, this is for you. When we talk about the immigrant community in Lahaina, 
Veronica, can you give us an idea of where they have relocated from, what languages they speak? I know you've mentioned the Mexican population as well as the Filipino. Are there other ethnicities, other languages that need help? Yes. We have Micronesian community. So we have Marshallese, Pompeian, Yappies, Chukis, and a couple of other languages that are, I don't know if you know them, Liza. But then we also have Tagalog, Ilocano, so both of those for Filipino, Spanish. Those are like the primary ones. But we know we also have Japanese folks, Thai, and Vietnamese. And I would just add Koch Ryan and Tongan were also, especially the Tongan community was was pretty large that has been impacted. Veronica, I've spoken to a handful of Maui residents impacted by the fire. They all describe the process to apply for government assistance as grinding, something they have to Mm -hmm. consistently keep tabs on and stay persistent with. When it comes to a group of people who English is not their first language, is the government doing anything to be able to meet the people where they are? Or is this where some of the community groups like your organization, like the Hawaii Coalition for Immigrant Rights, is that where they come in? You know, I think especially immediately after the fires, you had an incredible outpour of activation from the community directly. So you had folks that were not like free agents, uh, not affiliated with anyone and like less than 24 hours just activated because we all know people from Maui, we all know that there is a large immigrant community in Lahaina. So we all just activated. I would say that the government organizations are doing better at providing, but I would still say that there is a gap in meeting the need. There's still a gap in meeting the need. And definitely that's where we step in, but we don't have the kind of budget Right, that these folks have, and so we're we're limited to the impact that we can have. But I would say that we're very proud of the work that we've been able to do because not only are we providing services in our language and in a way that that's like Liza said, culturally contextualized, but we're we're building a bridge of trust, and that is the most valuable thing out of this whole thing. Just to to respond to that, you know, at the disaster recovery center, they only had their interpreters on site, so the FEMA, like, contracted interpreters since the end of October. So oh, okay. mm-hmm. that is yeah. that is quite a delay. Now, you if you go to the Disaster Recovery Center, there's Spanish, there's Tongan, there are Filipino languages, Monday to Friday, 9 to 5. And on Wednesdays and Fridays, they offer Kershryan, Vietnamese, and Ponapayan interpreters. But, you know, there was a leg. And I would say, you know, oftentimes language access is put fifth or sixth on the priority list of like, you know, we need to get people food and housing. And what folks don't realize is you can't get people food and housing unless it is language accessible. Then those folks are not included. So it's not fifth or sixth. It's really pre one. And and -hmm. not only is it you know, just a, a nice idea of something extra that you could do. It's the federal law. It's it's Title VI. Anybody who receives this, you know, the state or the county or any organization that is serving fire survivors and receiving federal funds, they are obligated under federal law to provide meaningful language access. And, you know, that wasn't there at the beginning. And so the we and organizations like Roots Reborn and the Pacific Gateway Center and the Office of Language Access, 
we have all been meeting multiple times a week since three days after the fire. Our first Maui emergency call had 80 folks on it. Wow. And we have been continually meeting week after week after week, trying to triage needs for translation of documents, trying to figure out where interpreters need to be deployed. Because unfortunately, we didn't have a, a plan for language access when a disaster hit. And so we have been trying to backfill and do that work. I will say there have been many agencies and, department, and departments at the state level that have been responsive. The Office of Community Service was able to reallocate some funding that the Pacific Gateway Center was getting, as well as Hawaii Coalition for Immigrant Rights as a recipient, to do immigrant resource centers. And they allowed us to move that money around and get up a multilingual hotline where we can provide live interpretation intakes and referrals six days a week. And I'll provide the number for that. That's 808-518-6217. But it has been a story of the community really rising up and organizations, people like Vero and, and, and her team stepping in to fill the gap where if we had planned better up front, we would not need to exhaust these resources, these human resources of people donating their time, you know, only ha not having time to eat, not being able to take care of their family because they are on the field doing this largely at a volunteer level day in, day out. And that was Liza Ryan Gill from the Hawaii Coalition for Immigrant Rights and Veronica Mendoza Jahowski from the nonprofit Ro Roots Reborn. They were talking with HBR's Russell Subiano about helping Lahaina's immigrant community, which was impacted by the wildfires. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to supporting the people and places affected by the Maui wildfires. Donations accepted at hawaiicommunityfoundation.org slash MauiStrong. For those in the market for a new car, the sticker price on EVs can be kind of shocking. A lot of consumers are interested in electrified vehicles, but maybe not ready to take the full step towards EVs. I'm Kai Rizdal taking the hybrid high road. Next time on Marketplace. Beginning this evening at 6, following All Things Considered. Life on Stage 4. It's how the late Willie Kay saw the world before his passing due to cancer. It's also the title of an episode of a TV show that's being reprised as we prepare to count our blessings heading into the Thanksgiving season. Willie was a Lahaina son, and his family was affected by, uh, like many of those uh, in the wildfires there in Maui. Emmy Tabimbang, producer of Emmy's Island Moments, visited Maui as part of an effort to update the show that airs beginning this Sunday on KHON and its affiliate channels. We talked to her about why a Willie Kay's story matters this holiday season as we look for ways to heal from this latest disaster. He just gave hope, and I think that's what the Lahaina survivors need. And he's a resident. He was born there. He was raised there. He went to Lahaina Luna High School. If he were alive today, I think these would be his messages. I remember he said something like, you know, when you hear you have cancer, you, yes, you can have fear, but, you know, only for a day. 
And the rest of it, you have to power through it, make the most of what you need to do, whether it's cancer treatment or, you know, going through whatever is, you know, being given to you for hopefully, you know, a longer life. And if not, then you just make the most of what you have in front of you. And it just speaks to um, just a lot of the things I think that most of the survivors would be thinking about now. And and uh, and he's a fellow Lahai man. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I just felt it was it was appropriate to bring him back, and we share a lot of his you know different kinds of music. So. Well, Some people might think, what is that all about? But others I know, it'll speak to them. Well, you were just over there in Maui, you know, meeting with some of those residents and talking to the people who were recovering from this terrible disaster. What was it like over there for you? Well, it was it was very, very painful. And I have to tell you that my husband's secretary couldn't find her brother. So I had to help her, and I went through a very personal, uh, it was as if I lost my brother, and I had to call FEMA and Maui PD and, you know, just all the agencies to say, well, how do I find my brother? And if they ask you, can you send um, a DNA sample? Well, I know that a lot of the Filipino people didn't know what DNA was, and a lot of people, Filipino or not, didn't know that Asking for DNA means there's probably not much of, you know, um, body left. And, you know, so that's pretty hard to imagine. You have to, you know, you just have to be ready for. And so it was, it was tough. Um, I think, I think what I learned most of all is that, yeah, you know, they talk about this resiliency and the way that everybody came from different parts of the town. Some people came from San Diego. Some people came from Vegas just to give the survivors a hand, either whatever they needed, food, clothing, or just someone to talk to. It it was just amazing to see that. Um, This is unprecedented. A whole town is gone. And I used to... That was my playland. (laughs) I remember seeing, um, you know... Elton John at a place called, um, oh gosh, it's going to escape me now, but it's right on the second floor, and Blue Max. And uh, that was quite a moment to watch him from downstairs because the place was packed. And, you know, Loggins and Messina was there a lot. Um, McDonald, Mike McDonald owns a restaurant. So you had all these celebrities walking around and not really caring um, if they were going to be recognized because nobody paid attention to them. And and then you can see that when you get to talk to the people who live there, you know, they're very, they're very kind. They're very thoughtful and they're not going to be in your face. And I think that that's why they have this substance, you know, they're salt of the earth. And um, there's just a lot of stories about what it's like to live in Lahaina and, I think we're going to hear more about it as, you know, as the days go by. And then you'll see the really rich culture, the style, the mannerisms of being a Lahaina, you know, born or bred or both. And um, I think Willie Kay was all of that. You know, when I think about it, he was sort of the ultimate Lahainian. And 
I just wish she was still around. Well, when you were over there, you talked to a number of people in the Filipino community. Talk about the, the kinds of things that you saw while you were there. Well, first of all, they're extremely private, and it's kind of difficult for them to come out. But there was a moment when Senator Aimee Marcos, on a trip to Hawaii, unannounced, she decided to go to Lahaina, and she actually met these people. And, of course, they didn't even know that was her. They couldn't believe that she had come all this way to see them. And whether it was intentional or not, she was there holding their hand. And uh, she, she told me later on that she was going to really work hard to fast track um, their their concerns. Like, they don't have a passport. They don't have their papers, especially those that are, you know, from the Philippines, immigrants. And she said she would fast track the paperwork. A lot of them just wanted to go home. They wanted to go back to the Philippines. One person whose husband died, I mean, Monica said, making a sort of a promise that she would do all she could to help get him back to his province. And the wife was like in tears. And, and you know, Ms. Uh, Senator Marcus said she would try to make sure that she could at least do that for her husband. I mean, it's just tear-jerking, the, 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 the things that they want, the things that they need. And, and they're really, they, it's bar- embarrassing for them to ask. One thing about Filipinos, they're right there to help you, but they're the last people to ask for anything. I, it's in their culture not to, you know, not to ask. Well, I'm sure so that... You didn't, you didn't hear too much, you know, but we've pulled some of it out of them and found out again, you know, the substance of what what the culture is all about. And you shared that uh, Aimee Marcos mentioned that her brother, now President Marcos Bongbong Jr., is coming to Honolulu. Yes, it's um, when you think about it, and for me, it's really personal because I kind of lived with that story for seven, eight years, and it took me to New York, to Foley Square, during their their trial, and I went back to the Philippines with Imelda Marcos. I flew on the plane, and then just in between all that, there were all these different adventures, you know, sometimes misadventures, while you're covering the story. And now to see it come to this, I, you know, I keep having a difficult time thinking. They left the Philippines and Malacanang Palace, with nothing, basically, came here and and lived off of people's clothing and things that they brought. And now, who's who's coming is the is Bong Bong Ferdinand Marcos Jr., who is currently the president of the Philippines. Correct me if I'm wrong, but he hasn't been back here since his father died, and he uh, took you know his body back to the Philippines, right? Yes, that's correct. And I will tell you that a year ago, he was already trying to come here and because he had to speak before the United Nations and he thought he would just make a quick stop over. Well, I think he forgot he was president and that he has a lot of Secret Service flying with him, which he never had before. Mm. And so they couldn't stop over. There were too many people, too many issues. And now that they planned this because he's at APEC, in San Francisco, then he will come through Hawaii 
to go back to the Philippines and he's having, you know, like a meet and greet event with some of the community leaders on Saturday. And so if you've lived through it the first time, this is really weird now to see him surrounded by all the Secret Service people and to have him the president when he was literally nothing, you know, the last time he was here. Right. So it's, um, I don't know how to put it, but it's, for me, it'd be like closure, you know, just, and, and also, you know, wondering, okay, what, what, what's going to happen? I will share with you that on one of my interviews, I asked him, how will you explain your father's legacy to your son? He has three young, young men and they're all into politics. Um, and he just stopped for a moment and he looked at me and he says, well, I'm certainly not going to uh, let them read history books. And I said, well, if you're going to rewrite it, you're going to have to live it first and you're going to have to bring back some kind of positivity to your family name. And he said, yes, and I will do that. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see how he does it and if that happens at all. But, um, you know, the, the the polls showed that, oh, my gosh, you know, all the millions of people that lived there, he had the highest number of all presidential elections. Do we know whether he will try to make a stop in Maui? I could be wrong, but the tight schedule as it is, he only has really two days here. And one day is already spoken for. And the second day, I don't know, maybe that's maybe then he'll go to Maui. But I don't think so. As you said, when he started off with this interview, you know, this, this is a time of thanks. And so no matter what has befallen you, you just have to be grateful for what's there and, and go with it. And, and that's what, you know, that's what Willie said. And so words to be remembered by one of Lahaina's own. <laughs> and I think people will enjoy it, even the second time around, I hope, anyway. <laughs> And that was Emmy Timimbong, producer of Emmy's Island Moments. And that show featuring Willie Kay will play this Sunday on KHON and other channels. Check your program listings to tune in. I like the look at your smiling face, child. It's going to be a wonderful day. You know, I wake up and say, Lucy Hone was familiar with the five stages of grief, but when she really needed help, she found them wanting. I don't want to be told what I'm going to feel. I am desperate to know what I can do. Finding your way forward after devastating loss, this week on Hidden Brain from NPR. Beginning this evening at 7. The mistrust was there from the moment the disaster happened. On the next episode of This Is Our Hawaii, Maui's fires have left pain and loss, and for some, a fear private land may end up in the hands of the government. It's happened once before. What's to say it's not going to happen again? Available tomorrow, wherever you get your podcasts. 
The new documentary, Hometown Legends, features five beloved kapuna living on the Big Island. It captures their mastery of various Hawaiian traditions and skills, from pahu drum making to the ranching life of a paniolo. Kobe Moser is a co-director of the film. She grew up in Kau and is the owner of Aria Studios, which specializes in shooting wedding videos and producing commercials. The Conversations Russell Subiano talked to Moser this morning about why she decided to venture into documentary filmmaking. I've always kind of had in the back of my mind that I wanted to do a documentary and specifically on kupuna. You know, growing up in Hawaii, we just grew up in a culture where we respect our kupuna. I don't want like the next generation to forget that. I want their kupuna stories to be always around and always, you know, guiding them. I think growing up with my grandparents, I was always around kupuna. And that definitely shaped me. So I knew as a filmmaker that one day I would make a film that highlighted and elevated the voices of of our kupuna. I just didn't really know when. And I have been talking about this for the last 20 years. Anybody who's known me has heard me talk about this idea that I had to do a film about kupuna from Hawaii Island, which is my island. I grew up in Kau. So the last year was the year that it just it happened all the stars aligned and it was just the right time but i have been thinking about it it's been percolating for i'd say two decades from the website and the trailer i think i kind of figured out that in the film you profile five kupuna Mm -hmm. living on the big island and preserving different parts of hawaiian culture can you share Mm -hmm. briefly who they are and what makes them so legendary We have two kupuna from Waimea. That's where my family and I live now. That's the only home that my girls have known. So we have Uncle Sonny Kealani. He's Paniolo. He worked for Parker Ranch. He is knows everything about cowboy. But more than that, he knows about fishing. He knows about Aina. He knows about language. So we do focus on, you know, his work as Paniolo, but even more than that, just like his knowledge about place and Aloha Aina. We also profile Uncle Manny Vincent. He's also from Waimea. He started Kauai High Canoe Club 50 years ago. Just so well known in the community. He was a fireman. He's also a Paniolo. He does these kupuna, they know how to do all kinds of things. So we do have them talk about a specific craft or skill that they have, but they know, I mean, they're just so wise in just how they live their life and about place. Uncle Manny spends most of his time on Mauna Kea. He's hiked probably every inch of Mauna Kea. He knows that place like the back of his hand. So he showed us artifacts. He's taken us to places that we have never been before. And we have part of that in the film. We also talked to Uncle Keone Taraldi. He's a pahu drum maker. He's actually from Oahu, but he moved to Hilo, Kyokaha when his kids were little. And he's made that his home. And he had a diving accident, so he is in a wheelchair. But it's just amazing to see him do all the things that he does, even from a wheelchair. He's taking care of a huge plot of land that he uses for education. So he has Kiki come and he teaches them about Again, Aloha Aina and also about pahu drum making and carving. We also feature Uncle Willie Kalpiko. He's generations deep from Mililii. So he talks about, you know, the way that his kupuna fished and the way that he's preserving his place today. And it's he's super inspirational because he's gone to Washington and he's really stood up for his place in a, in a way that is so inspirational. 
And he hopes that they use Milali'i as a model for other people to sign up for their places. So Milali'i right now is protected. It's like a national historic preserving site and the way that they fish is the way that his kupuna fished back in the day and we also feature auntie shirley kauhaihao she's from kealia which is south kona and she comes from a whole ohana of fishermen canoe i mean hunters all kinds of things her family did but the thing that she got passed down was lahala weaving so she is a master lahala weaver she learned from her grandma the way that she picks, the way that she weaves is the exact same way that her grandma did. She even uses her grandma's tools. Where all of these kupuna, we get this special treat where we get a peek into their lives and into the thing that they do. But more than that, it just feels like being with your grandma or grandpa. It has that feeling of like just a hug, you know, and I've seen the film probably a hundred times at this point and just hearing their voices just it grounds me, honestly, and I hope it does that for everyone else. And one of the reasons I was interested in talking to you about the film is because I went to elementary school with Uncle Sonny's son, and I think Hawaii's ranching and cowboy culture is something that we don't get a lot of opportunity to talk about. Can you share how you got connected to him and why you thought his story was important to share with others? I mean, you know, living in Waimea, it's pretty, it's a big part of Waimea culture. It still is cowboy. I mean, you see it all over the place. Not like it was before, probably when you were growing up, when horses were just around, you know, (laughs) there were more horses and cars probably back then, but it's still a part of our culture. And Uncle Sani is one of those people that everybody in the community respects. You know, when he walks into Fork, everybody's buying him a Bud Light. (laughs) So when we set out to do this project, we just asked all of our friends, people that we knew who were connected to Kupuna, who would you interview? This is our idea. This is our project that we are hoping to make. Who would you recommend? And Uncle Sonny Keakelani kept coming up over and over again. And like you said, he is so knowledgeable when it comes to Paniolo but so much more. And his whole entire family are also legends. You know, they know so much about this place. They know the name of every pu'u. They know like the name of every valley and beach. And they talk in the film about how important it is to know your place and to be connected to your place. So it was a huge honor. On the Hometown Legends website, you wrote that his jobs working for Pu'u Va'ava'a Ranch and Parker Ranch took him to every mountain, coast, and corner of the island and how mm-hmm. Aloha Aina means knowing your Aina intimately and to care for, connect to, and protect your places. When mm-hmm. most people think about ranching, I think they think about caring for the cattle, but it sounds like our Paniolo see their job as caring for the land as well. Yeah, Uncle Sonny, in the credits, there's this soundbite where he talks about on his cowboy hat, he has dirt from every mountain of Hawaii Island, and he's been to every corner. You know, Parker Ranch is so big, and he's worked for other ranches like Puva Ranch, but he's been to every corner of the island. And, you know, when you're on your horse, you can't just drive through, you know, you can't just drive through your saddle road. You're going through... Kulapa, he calls it like high rises and like low, you know, you're like in, in there (laughs) on the side of mountains, on the side of pu'us. I mean, you're seeing things that nobody's ever seen. So he's had this really unique perspective, I think, as a cowboy to just know his aina in a very, very intimate way. And he teaches that to his kids. 
I haven't had the chance to see the film, but I get the feeling from the trailer and the website that the stories that you capture aren't just about documenting these people's individual expertise, but also how it contributes to the bigger picture of land stewardship and cultural preservation. Is that something that you did intentionally? You know, going into it, we 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 never had a project quite like this. When we have commercial films, we have a very specific goal in mind, soundbite that we want to get. This one was very organic. I mean, we didn't have a plan outside of just like setting a really beautiful set for them to just talk and share whatever they wanted to share. And we didn't really cut them off. We just we just asked some general questions like, where did you grow up and what was life like back in those days? And they just talked and they shared. And so what came out of it was pretty magical. I couldn't have ever plan for what would come out we had an idea you know of the things that they did and kind of their life story but it was just so much more than that i i thought we were gonna get you know specific things about lauhala weaving or pahu drum making but just the themes were just a beautiful thing that came out of it and i think the message that they shared was meant for this generation at this time colby thanks so much for your time thank you russell and that was filmmaker Colby Moser talking to HBR's Russell Subiano. Uh, Moser's film Hometown Legends is screening tonight at 7 p.m. at Kahilu Theater on the Big Island. We'll have a link to more information on the conversation page of our website later today. <laughs> Well, that does it for us today. Up tomorrow, we learn more about the legacy of the Trust for Public Lands as it celebrates 50 years of service. Did you know it's credited with the expansion of Hawaii Volcanoes National Park? Give us some feedback. Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can find the conversation segments on our website or at your favorite podcast store. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Thank you.